to the All Things Connected podcast, where we explore the most pressing and fascinating issues of today with experts in their field. This is Jared Hocking. Well, my last episode was released on July 28th, which is less than two weeks ago, but it feels like much longer than that. And I know that you've been eagerly awaiting new episodes, so I'm excited to bring you today's conversation. I think the timing of today's conversation around the role of individual and institutional racism in our society with a focus on the United States is especially important given that the protests associated with the Black Lives Matter movement have largely died down. But given the facts on the ground, as you'll hear from this conversation, that, for example, study after study has found that all ethnic and racial groups use and sell drugs at about the same rate in the U.S., And if anything, white Americans have been found to use and sell at slightly higher rates. In some states, as high as 90% of the offenders serving time in prison for drug-related offenses are black Americans. So there's obviously some serious racial biases occurring in our criminal justice system. And when we look at the Fortune 500, literally 1%, five of those companies are run by a black American. So just two data points to consider there. In my view, these data points make clear the urgent need to continue to have these conversations and the urgent need to make reforms in our society to address these injustices. We need to shine a spotlight on the invisible and also very visible inequities present in our society today and the unconscious and conscious biases that continue to drive them. One other note before I introduce today's episode formally is that going forward in the episode notes, you will find background reading on the subjects discussed, and I'm going to backdate these for previous episodes, both for your own research purposes and also to demonstrate the evidence underlying some of the points that are made in these conversations. Okay, today I am speaking with activist scholar Naomi May, who is a PhD candidate in the Education Foundations and Policy Program at the University of Michigan. Naomi served as the president of the Rackham Student Government at U of M for two terms from 2017 to 2019, and she was also previously the vice president from 2016 to 2017. Originally from Southeast San Diego, before coming to U of M, Naomi was a student activist and community organizer in Berkeley, California, and New York City. She is currently working on her dissertation, which involves working with youth organizers of color in Detroit and highlighting how their educational activism can inform education policy and how communities, researchers, and policymakers can work together to achieve greater educational equity. So she is definitely a uniquely informed voice to discuss the issues we discussed today, namely the grave disparities and racial inequalities that we still see and Black Americans still experience today in American society, much as a result of our racially tainted past. And with that, I bring you... Naomi May Wilson. Okay, so I'm here with Naomi May, who is a PhD candidate in educational studies here at the University of Michigan, where we both attend school. And I'm really excited for our conversation to go in depth on many of the topics that have emerged recently with the Black Lives Matter movement. Naomi, thank you for joining me for this conversation. Yeah, no problem. Happy to be here. Thank you. So we we actually connected because you were recently on a town hall, a university-wide town hall called Constructive Conversations for Social Change, which involved you and other local and, and student activists. 
and the president of our, our university and its uh, chief diversity officer, Robert Sellers. And I thought of all the panelists on that conversation, your perspectives really struck me and, and resonated with me. So I'm really excited to talk about the racial injustices and inequities that are very prevalent today in, in American society and what reforms are needed to address them. And I've been doing a lot of a lot of research so that I can be informed uh, coming into this conversation. And I, I know you already very much are, and you have a, a very unique perspective to share given your your background and your your focus area. And I wanted to to start with a biographical question. So can you share for our audience what exactly is educational studies, the the PhD that you're working toward? And can you also briefly touch on the work that you're doing with youth as part of your dissertation? Sure. In terms of what I do, so yeah, educational studies, and I'm in more specifically the Education Foundations and Policy Program, and we're just interdisciplinary by nature. Um, and it's like, one of those like broad-based programs where all things education and it really allows for, um, like I said, interdisciplinarity that um, is often difficult to reach within um, some of our programs. And so that's what drew me to, to applying to UM in the first place. Um, in terms of my dissertation, so um, it's phenomenal. I get to collaborate with amazing youth of color in Detroit who our organizers for education justice. And my dissertation is a critical ethnography and critical ethnography is really dedicated to being of the space. And um, so ethnography is like typically kind of kin, I think in the past, no, not think, I know for a fact. Um, and in particular, its roots in anthropology um, was very voyeuristic um, and uh, very like, oh, I want to, uh, what is it? look at the human or people and study them. And uh, as the field has grown and more folks have become in our schools and within our programs, we've pushed for uh, more criticality, such as critical ethnography, um, which by Madison is described as essentially doing work um, within or like you're doing research in your space and you're also of the space, right? So for me, I'm an organizer and activist as well. So I come in this space more than a researcher. I'm also an adult ally. I also organize with the youth. I also train with the youth and trained by them and train them in different political education topics, um, which all goes down to my dissertation will looks at how youth of color or youth of color organize across race and ethnicity in order to fight for educational justice in Detroit. And it's a focus on organizing activism, identity, and place as different and intersecting analytical points. Very interesting. And and we will come back to that at the end of our conversation, because I always like to end on an optimistic note. And I'm sure that what you're seeing from the youth down there can be can can be thought of in, in that way. In the meantime, you, you mentioned you've had a number of experiences and in, in, in different environments. You've worked as a community organizer in some very different but uh, very progressive environments, including in Berkeley and New York City. What did you learn from those experiences and how did those experiences shape how you think about the issues of racial inequality in our society today? 
Well, I got my training chops, my organizing chops at UC Berkeley. That's where I attended as an undergraduate student. And I majored in African-American studies and minored in education. Um, now, I went to Berke- when I went to Berkeley, I wasn't thinking, oh, I'm going to be an activist. I was just like, oh, I'm really excited to go to a college that's away from home in San Diego and you know, learn and, and the different things that most folks are excited about when they go away to college. And my first semester there, actually early on in the second semester, uh, some white fraternity people decided to throw a uh, what they called a celebration in honor of Martin Luther King on Martin Luther King Day, a Compton cookout. And they had this party where they asked people to dress in the most stereotypical um, ways of Black people. So wear gold chains and drink 40 ounce beers. And and so in solidarity, solidarity across the UC systems, um, Black students, Black college students decided to hold protests across the UC system in solidarity with UC San Diego, um, which is my hometown, right? And, uh, you know, we were just disgusted um, that a party like that could happen and that, you know, folks thought that that was something to to celebrate and be okay with. So we held a protest. I was uh, just turned 18 years, 18 years old and um, me and my comrades and sisters back then blocked Sather Gate, which is the main entry at UC Berkeley. And was like, basically, do you see us now? So you think that's funny? Well, here we are. And to be 18 years old and and being a part of a movement like that would just open my eyes to more of the injustice in society as a young Black girl in Southeast San Diego. I'm very aware of um, the injustices in our society. And so, yeah, those are some of the things that uh, really shaped how I think about how I think about the work that I do and who I am and also racial inequity in, in our society. Right. And all of that makes very clear that you are a voice of of authority on the issues that we're going to speak about. And as a, a leader and an activist here on our campus and on, on all the campuses and environments you've you've been a part of fighting racial inequities and racial injustices on on the ground. I, I and I think before we get deep into the issues of this conversation that we're gonna have, it, it's it strikes me that I think we need to discuss what we're aiming toward and the more that, you know, the, the ideal society that we're aiming toward. And I think some of these terms can be confused and sometimes they can prompt some people to have certain reactions like wealth inequality, for example, on the right, you get a lot of people saying, well, of course there's going to be wealth inequality. So that leads me to ask you about how we think about this distinction between equality and equitable. And for context's sake, there's a number of different ways we can think about this. It could be equal opportunity provided to everyone or equal treatment, which would be the definition of equitable, a a just and fair society. Or it could be equal outcomes where everyone is in, in the same place. So, and actually President Obama during his presidency, as a reflection of the political tides turning against this idea of equality and wealth. He started talking, he made a shift to start talking less about equality and income inequality to more about providing equal opportunity to all Americans. So with that in mind, when we, when you rather think about the type of society that you envision and we want to create for all Americans, for black Americans, for white Americans and everyone else, how how do you think about these concepts of equality or equity and w- what is your focus on? 
I always emphasize equity. I think that you just, equity allows for you to account for past like historical atrocities and inequities and injustices. Um, you know, I, I've taught a couple of times at, um, university of Michigan. And whenever I teach my students who, um, were third year undergraduate teacher intern teacher candidates. So they're in our teacher program. Um, and I taught them about, you know, equity and equality, which some of them did not know the difference. I always talk about thinking about the number of family. If you have a family of six and a family of three and they all get the same amount of food, um, that's equal, but it's not equitable. The family of six is obviously going to need more. And um, you can get that, you can make that even more complicated and think about, well, what about the identities of the family? You know, what happens if it's an indigenous family um, who is uh, on a reservation and they have less access to, um, you know, working technology, for instance. Um, uh, and then you compare that to a more affluent um, family and say that they're white and they're in the middle of, I don't know, Ann Arbor, Michigan. Um, what do you think about with equal and equity then, right? So the, fam- the indigenous family on the reservation, they're going to need more access. And so for me, it's always an emphasis of equity because it accounts for the myriad of experiences and identities that folks hold. And in particular, the histories of this country um, and what communities need specifically. So for me, it's about specificity. So even thinking about, you know, what we want to create for society, you know, we often go into to binaries, you know, black and white or straight or gay or girl or boy. And we're just so used to, um, I would say just lazy <laughs> to operate in these binaries when, you know, we're so much more fluid as human beings. We have so many more identities and, you know, it's really on us to, to be more inclusive and also um, creating the opportunities for folks um, and, and passing the mic, what I call passing the mic, right? Like thinking about, you know, the privileges that you may hold and who is more fit to be at that table or who is more fit to be in that position. Um, if you think about whatever position you may hold, I mean, I can get into a, so many different examples, but that's like where I stand. Um, I guess at the basic level of, of equality and equity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And to me, as you noted, the historical injustices that have happened in this country, which are sometimes forgotten or, or many people want to shrug off or want to forget. I, we're we're going to get into some examples here and I will link out to some articles that I've read in preparation for this, but it's about reversing. It's not just moving in the direction where we're now going to create equal treatment of all people going forward. It's about reversing those longstanding, decades-long, centuries-long treatment of African-Americans as a lesser race and reflecting of policy and reflecting of treatment in the criminal justice system that continue to show up today. And it, even if we focus on providing what's called equal opportunity to all Americans. What we're missing is we're saying that there's a hypothetical start point that we're now putting everyone at that really loses sight of these these decades-long injustices that have, have been happening. And uh, 
Ibram Kendi's work on how to be an anti-racist and his distinction, how he says that there's a real dichotomy between there's there's no dichotomy, I should say, rather, between being an anti-racist or being a racist. There's no middle ground there. He makes this persuasive argument that people who want to believe I'm neither racist nor anti-racist, that they're creating a new distinction. And the way that this parallels with the equality and equity argument is he says that if you are not endorsing anti-racist policies, if you're not actively endorsing breaking down the policies and the treatment, the unfair, unequitable, meaning unjust treatment of black Americans in this country, then you're essentially endorsing the racist treatment. There's there's no in-between there. And the way that I see it with this this issue is that either you actively endorse that we're working towards an equitable society where we're treating people completely equally. We're not treating people unfairly based on the color of their skin. Unless you actively endorse that, then you're really on the wrong side of the anti-racist or racist argument. So I think when we're when we're having this conversation, as you said, we're really focusing on making things just and making things fair and not necessarily trying to strive towards equal outcomes for everyone. Right. Right. So with that with that in mind, we are now it's been more than 2 months since the killing of of George Floyd and around that time the killing of Ahmad Arbery and Breonna Taylor that sparked what is believed to be the largest protest movement in American history, which is the the recent Black Lives Matter protest movement. And with the exception of Portland, the protests have have greatly died down and I don't know if this is true empirically, but it seems to some extent people are trying to move on. And actually, that's why I'm glad that we're having this conversation when we are, because I think this conversation continues to need to be had and and we need to put focus on this area. But it has seemed, at least over the last two months, to have awoken a kind of uh, reckoning, a a public consciousness around the need to reform many areas of our, our society, from law enforcement, rethinking of the police, and rethinking of how we're including people in, in academia, how we're making efforts to make corporations and in every area of our society more inclusive and reflect this idea of equity that we just discussed. And in my mind, the criminal justice system is is one of the first places we need to start. But with all that in mind, what has been your reaction to the seeming awakening of public consciousness around the idea of racism and, and anti-Blackness in our society? And what change do you hope that comes out of this movement? I mean, like I said on the town hall, this isn't anything new, right? And so when you ask about, you know, or even when you use terms like awakening, it's, it's from whose vantage point are you, are you speaking from? Because it's not an awakening for those of us who've been in this work, involved in justice work, or who hold the identities of black indigenous or Asian Pacific Islander or Latinx, like we are very much aware of these issues. We never were not aware of racism and anti-blackness. I I wish that were the case, <laughs> but we. I, I agree, but there's. It seems that it has really woken people up, and some of these things that have happened as a result of this movement are positive. The question is, will this have a long-standing effect, and will it be positive enough? So, so some of the things that have happened, you know, public support for the Black Lives Matter movement has increased substantially. The Minneapolis City Council is closely examining and and voted to disband their police department. Corporate commitments making substantial sums towards 
ending racial inequality and from what it seems that this is all in response to this this movement and it would not have happened if if not for this movement so mm-hmm. i guess my yeah my reaction would be or my question is does this signal progress to you do you think it's it's sufficient is it enough and and how do we carry this momentum going forward mm-hmm. i think for me for naomi being an activist and organizer calls on me to um, what Duncan Andrade calls critical hope that, you know, I'm aware of the systems and the society and the endemic nature of oppression and racism and anti-blackness and transphobia, homophobia, sexism, classism, keep going ableism. And as an activist and as an organizer, I have, I have to believe for me that there is ability for, for change. That's just, you know, that's my own epistemology. And so whenever I see folks standing up and fighting back and um, working together to change our society for the betterment of everybody, I am encouraged. And I do think we're moving in a way that um, signals to me that there's possibility, right? But is that within our lifetime? I have no idea, you know. I wish I knew, but I am very much encouraged by, you know, with the young folks I work with in Detroit, for example, or, you know, seeing what's happening on the ground. I am not so much impressed or encouraged by corporate commitments because they still, you know, Walmart still doesn't have uh, an equal pay or <laughs> health care for their workers. Um, Comcast and monopolies. I mean, you know, you can go on and on. And so we're looking for systemic change, right? Institutional overhauls. And so, and by we, I mean, I am, and also the folks that I may be organizing with and who I think I align with politically. Um, So what kind of systemic changes are you asking for? I think what a lot of people have been asking for, which is that can humans be, can we just be, can a child play with a toy gun in a park and not be shot down without any question? You know, can, can a, can a, can a child go and and get some Skittles and some iced tea and not be harassed and then killed? And then that person not spend a day in jail, those type of things. Can a, can a person lay on their couch after being an essential health worker and, and go to sleep and and not be afraid that they're going to get shot and killed in their sleep and nothing happens to the police officers who killed her, Brianna Taylor. I'm looking for that type of change. I want, you know, the youth who I work with in Detroit, I want them to, you know, I want them to have childhoods where they don't have to spend their, their childhoods fighting where they can just be that that's the type Mm -hmm. of change I'm looking for. I I totally agree. And here are, I'm going to make a couple points here that are very impassioned and they are completely relevant to what you were just saying. And this as I said at the beginning of this conversation, I've been thinking about these concepts for a while. What what our listeners should know is that race is not a biological construct. The way that whites over time have treated the justification for treating black individuals and individuals with non-white skin is completely a, a, a social construct. And I, I want to grab this language from an article by Elizabeth Colbert that I, I just read on the topic, because if we were to embrace science and we were to embrace the fact that all of this treatment that, uh, of, of black people or non-white people in a different way because of decades of spurious anecdotes is completely wrongheaded. So 
um, I'm going to, I'm just going to read this real quick for our, our listeners. So over the past few decades, genetic research has revealed two deep truths about people. The first is that all humans are closely related, more closely related than all chimps, even though many more humans are around today. Everyone has the same collection of genes, but with the exception of identical twins, everyone has slightly different versions of them. Studies of this genetic diversity have allowed scientists to reconstruct a kind of family tree of human populations. And this has revealed a second detruth. In a very real sense, all people alive today are Africans. Very small, very refined genetic mutations in our skin's melanin that gave rise to differences we see today because of sun exposure and the adaptive ability to incorporate these genetic changes reflect differences in skin today. By analyzing the genes of present-day Africans, researchers have concluded that a tribe that currently lives in Southern Africa and another tribe, the Pygmies, have a very long history as a distinct group. But what this means is that the deepest splits in human family are not between what we usually thought of as different races, whites or blacks or Asians or Native Americans. They are, there is no homogeneous African race, says geneticist Sarah Tishkoff of the University of Pennsylvania. It doesn't exist. The prehistoric humans who left Africa some 60,000 years ago, giving rise over time to peoples of the world, reflected only a fraction of African's diversity, Africa's diversity. So this idea that in some way we can tell something about a person based on the color of their skin is, is just nonsense. All, all of the different treatment of blacks in our society can be traced back to this idea that somehow blacks and whites are different. But the, the reality is we all descended from the same people in Africa 60,000 or, or however many thousand years ago, and we really share the same genes. The only difference is this rare mutation that allows people to have different skin. And all of the white supremacy that has filtered through our society throughout time is based on this false presumption. And another thing I want to say is that I was listening to John Lewis's memoirist talk recently, and he talked about how uh, Mr. Lewis adopted the stance of of total active nonviolence and channeling empathy for the people who were abusing him in, in the name of white supremacy. So my question to those people is if you're if you're somehow a white supremacist listening to this, who is the person who needs to reexamine their ideas about supremacy there? The the activist who is who is just asking to be treated fairly or the person assaulting them, abusing them, putting cigarettes out in, in their face. And there's a certain perspective I, I'm sure you might be able to share about, look at look at the way that we're being treated and look at what does that say about you? It, it doesn't reflect on, on us, right? Yeah, I think hmm. the thing about it is, you know, people are more afraid to be called a racist than they are to actually be a racist. And the moment that you call someone a racist is the moment that it's like, oh my goodness, not me. I'm not a racist. I I believed in what Dr. Martin Luther King said. I walked with Martin Luther King. I, you know, they always run to MLK for for one, for an, an example. I pushed you, I think, more in the, the everyday. So it's, it's, yes, the violence, the physical violence that Black people and people of color are um, experiencing, have been, continue to experience in this country, but it's also the everyday violence, you know, the, the, the concentrated poverty in, in neighborhoods. It's the inequitable access to higher education institutions. It's, it's the, the homelessness that's pervasive. It's the, 
you know, the way that we treat folks who are battling addictions, the way that we see the difference between cocaine and crack. It, it's, it's just the way that, you know, that there are hundreds and thousands of folks who are still in the prison system for marijuana charges when people are literally walking down the street smoking marijuana in Ann Arbor with no problem because it's now legalized. How does that make any sense? And so, you know, it, it's, it's all of that and also the every, every damn day. Um, that people are experiencing the the subtleties and the overt experiences and injustices of of racism and xenophobia. In in all of these disparities that we see in society, the result, the reason that there is more homelessness and more poverty in certain communities of of color, can be traced back to the the purely racial, purely racist policies that right. And and that's why that's why my my show is called All Things Connected, and that's a major under there's there's a major through line here that we can draw. I, I just read this book by a researcher Richard Rothstein that documents the deliberate and continuous discrimination and segregation at the federal level, at the state level, and at the local level to segregate people of color, to segregate back black people into certain communities, into certain cities. And to deny them financing from banks, to deny them opportunities, and we need to remember that context. We we need to be informed by that context because one thing I, I hear in my circles of of white people I know it, it doesn't hear I, I don't hear it often, but sometimes they make up this trope or they point to well, black people don't you know, they don't care about opportunity as much, or they don't care about education as much. And it's like, where are you getting that from? Have you read, are are you familiar with the constant, the the deliberate efforts to undermine every opportunity? And as you were just talking about the, the, the war on drugs, Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow makes clear that study after study has found that black people and white people or every racial group in this country use drugs, recreational drugs at about the same rate. Yet she says, if you walk through America's prisons, you would not know this. In the United States, those who do time for drug crimes are overwhelmingly black and brown. In some states, African-Americans constitute 80 to 90% of all drug offenders sent to prison. So how do we end up at that disparity? Right. I mean, yeah, I think, and then, you know, I think what you're speaking to is that we're not lacking on research, you know, (laughs) <laughs> we're not lacking on information about why these these injustices exist. I mean, again, going back to what I've taught my students about, like going over, you know, Massey and Denton's book, American Apartheid, looking at um, Dr. Linda Darling Hamming's work and connecting, you know, I'm in education. So all the things that you're talking about with the school to prison pipeline, which we're now talking is, you know, folks like Dr. Dave Stovall and Dr. Bettina Love have been pushing for the school to prison nexus. Um, so it's- Can it's, you can you speak for our listeners about that, about the school to prison what nexus? the school to prison pipeline is and, and what the school to prison nexus is and research you're familiar with on that? Mm-hmm. So school to prison pipeline is basically the systems that are set up in our country that um, by and large, black and brown students are- um, funneled into via schools are funneled into the prison system. So that, and that is typically via zero tolerance policy. So for those who are not familiar, I also went to schools with these types of policies. They've um, created education departments have created, and this has been through where 
you know, you can do a minor offense such as, you know, not wearing a belt with your uniform and you're suspended or you bring a pen, you know, you bring a a rat tail hair comb, for instance, or you have some scissors in your backpack and you walk through um, a metal detector metal detector if your school has that, which is predominantly, again, in in low-income Black and brown communities, and you're suspended or expelled. And Mm -hmm. uh, so that's, that's, you know, that's typically how school prison pipeline operates through um, different policies in our school systems, once again, that is predominantly housed with Black and brown, low-income students. And so the school and prison nexus that, you know, scholars, in particular, scholars of color have been pushing is that, you know, we are um, it is more than a pipeline. It is actually um, a system that is like all around um, for pushing students of color to be within the prison system all the way down to we've seen videos. And if for those who are listening, haven't seen the videos, just search where there have been kindergartners with handcuffs because they threw a tantrum. You know, what kindergarten do you know that does not throw a tantrum? Um, and they're in the back of a cop car in schools. And, you know, again, what we need to point out is that most teachers in our school systems are white women, uh, high up 80 percent, upper 80s um, percentages of our teachers are white women. And so when you think about the policing of black and brown students, you're like, well, who are the folks who are doing that? Right. And so it's, it's a call across the board about the ways in which our systems are to punish police um, and surveil communities of color in our society. Yeah. And so, as I mentioned, one of the things that I was reading in preparation for this conversation is the new Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. And and it remind what, what you just said invokes that because as a society, she says, we want to ignore up until very recently, or we, we want to overlook these very trivial or, or seemingly innocuous examples of treating someone differently based on the color of their skin and, and based on their racial I- identity. But those things roll up to large trends. You know, the fact that this one kindergartner, maybe she made the news because of the way she was treated, but there could be a thousand or a hundred thousand examples of that, that where it, it was just way more innocuous or, or maybe invisible that aren't being captured. But what she says is that, you know, she actually, I have the, the book in front of me here. Conversations and debates about race, much less racial castes, are frequently dismissed as yesterday's news, not relevant to the current era. Media pundits are, and more than a few politicians, insist that we as a nation have finally moved beyond race. But the the data in the criminal justice system do not bear that out, where 80 to 90% of people in prison for drug offenses are people of color. And so, so these things, these seemingly, you know, innocuous treatment really kind of roll up to these, these larger issues. So I actually have a a relatively, you know, we've started talking again during this time about the idea of reparations. And, And I have a way that I would go about this that I wanted to get your your thoughts on. So we know that there are so many disparities in representation in le- especially leadership positions but also in places of economic opportunity across our country. You know, we we're going to go in later in the conversation and into some of those details specifically about the ways that people of color and people with seemingly names of people of color are discriminated against in the 
job search process. So what I would do, I, I don't think the idea of just paying Black Americans back for the, the the original sin of slavery is enough. What I would do is I would advance the idea of every white person in a leadership position in this country, every university president, every CEO, every head coach of a football team or a baseball team or a softball team, every police chief, every mayor, I would endorse that they step down within their organization and that that organization hires a person of color, either a a non-white person to fulfill that role. And what that would do is it would serve to shift the entrenched power structures in our society that are currently concentrated with white people back into reverse the trend that we have seen. Because ever since slavery, white people have, in a self-fulfilling or in a self-serving way, inherited this this power and and stolen it from the equally deserving other people in this country. I, I don't know if this would ever come to pass, but I, I wanted to get your thoughts on what we can do if this if this is an idea worth pushing for and what we can do about these these longstanding what what reforms you see we need to make. Um yeah, I agree with you. And I, I want to say too that I I often don't use the term reform because the soil we we need to think about when folks say they're calling for abolition and defunding the police. They're not calling for police reform because police policing in this country started from slave patrols and hunting enslaved black folks, hunting, right? I'm using that word on purpose. And so the soil is rotten. And when you, you know, for those who are planters out there, I also have plant babies, you know, when the soil is rotten, you have to get rid of that soil. You can't, you can't work with that anymore. So, you know, what does it look like to overhaul and revolutionize our systems? And similarly with your um, line of, of argument, which I agree to an extent is that it's more than, you know, replacing folks who um, are, you know, identify as people of color but it's also ideology, right? And that that gets tricky because people are like, well, how do you know between, you know, how do you decide and how do you know which one's ideo- which ideology is better than another? Well, if you're not standing for the humanity of all folks and not only in your speak, but also in your actions, then you don't need to be in that, in that position, right? Um, it makes me think of, so in your particular point that you just made in terms of, you know, equitable access and, and changing those who lead these different companies or sports agencies or police forces, um, which, you know, again, I would argue for abolition. I think about if folks have the range. Um, and by that, I, you know, I'm a fan of slang. I use slang often. And when I say, you know, do people have the range? It's like, basically, do you have the skill sets? Um, once, so I was um, the president of Rackham Student, Rackham Student Government for two years. And I was invited to sit in um, and listen, this is before we did the duo system. And for those who don't know about the duo system, Michigan increased its security for accessing, you know, all things University of Michigan with our email, with our um, student databases and things like that. So you had to go through this like duo security system where, you know, you would put in your password and you also have to approve it on your cell phone. You know, when they were going over this system with me a few years ago, my first thought was, well, what about the students who don't have access to the, uh, a smartphone that can hold this system? And you know what they told me? They said, I didn't even think about that. And I was like, how, how thousands, you know, 60,000 students go here and you didn't think that there are some students who may not have access to, to smartphones that can hold this kind of security clearance or system? 
And similarly, I had a professor in 2017 who, you know, is now a full professor and um, they, he was teaching education policy, the readings on the syllabus for education policy throughout the entire semester were by white men. And when I asked him, how come you don't have any readings by any people of color, any women, any women of color? He said he his first response, and that's related, was, oh, well, I have some some women in the suggested readings. And I looked and they were all white women. So the entire syllabus was white. And he was teaching education policy in 2017. That's ridiculous. And his argument again was, I didn't notice. So you have folks who are in such, you know, powerful positions who don't notice. And that goes back to my you know, point earlier about the everyday. You don't notice the everyday. It's not only because maybe you know, you're not aware, but it's also that you don't have the skill set. People think you know, when folks are calling for organizers and activism, that is a skill set. To be critical is a skill. You know, and that's something that we need to emphasize more. So it's not only replacing folks who identify as a person of color, but it's also do you have the skill to be able to, to, to notice the trends, to do, to know what to do about the trends. Do you have the networks, the community, the collective to hold you accountable when you falter? Because you're a human at the end of the day, you're going to mess up, right? So do you have people on your team who can help you in these ways? And, and that's for me where it's at. That's where I think we're really going to start seeing, you know, not start because I think that there are, you know, so many beautiful movements across this country. And I don't want to, um, not acknowledge those because it's important of people's work. Hell, even having this type of conversation, right? You know, for me, it's, it's in that. Yeah. Until we give so much opportunity back that has been over decades been denied, frankly denied and, and, and blocked from communities of color, from Black Americans, unless we flip that and give that back, then due to tribalism and due to in-group bias, we're going to continue to see the same things. And, and this is supported by data. So here's a study that I looked up before a conversation. Recently, researchers from Northwestern looked at data from 1989 to 2015 in hiring practices and found that white applicants received 36% more callbacks than equally qualified African-Americans. And out of 500 companies in the Fortune 500, 1% Literally five black individuals are CEOs of those companies. And this filters through the entire organization, through our entire society. If those leaders are, are white and when they meet with someone, when they, it, it's going to filter through and, and the power structures that are so entrenched are going to continue to be perpetrated. And, and have you seen, I, I know diversity, equity, and inclusion has been a major focal point. Do you think that that's enough or are there more radical ways that we need to transform this issue of bringing back, providing back the opportunity to people of color and communities of color, which largely there are communities of color because our government sanctioned and guaranteed racial segregation, segregation in our cities. That's why there is a concept of communities of color. It's not by happenstance. Do you think that the, the, the focus on diversity and equity and inclusion goes far enough? I don't, because often those positions, you know, for people who do DEI work, diversity, equity, inclusion work, um, are grossly underfunded, you know, are grossly understaffed, are grossly undervalued. 
Um, you have that as as issues. You also, you know, have very superficial implementation of these, you know, forms of, of justice, I guess. Right. So, you know, you have it's it's similar to what was argued on the town hall um, when we were talking about diversity, equity, inclusion. We were also talking about the fact that, you know, you may have more black students on this campus. You may have these different pipelines for more students of color to go to University of Michigan, but they're treated horribly horribly. And, you know, there, I have a, a little sister, a mentee of mine who goes to university of Michigan as an undergraduate student. And when she first was coming to this school, I also, I had another mentee also who I consider a little sister of mine who got accepted in here and she's from California. And I told her not to come here because that she would not have a good experience. Now, when I first told the mentee who does go here now, and why is that? Here, speaking about here, meaning the University of Michigan, why? Right. Why is that? Well, because I knew that the, in particular, the Black undergraduate students were not having good experiences. That they were, you know, having a plethora of issues with white students at the University of Michigan. I mean, this may be a public university, but the wealth here is, I mean, astounding. So, you know, this is like one of the richest public universities in the nation. You know, which is definitely a big, a big factor, I would say. And I knew that Black undergraduates who go to University of Michigan experience a lot of, you know, racial issues. And I did not think that she would be happy going here. And I did not think it was worth the cost, too. I mean, she was going to be an out-of-state student paying out-of-state price um, to be in that type of place. Uh, No, especially for me, I'm coming from San Diego and Berkeley and New York. And being in a place like this is it's very wealthy and very white, which is very new for me. Um, and I, and I definitely could feel the difference. I mean, I definitely see trucks driving around with Confederate flags. I didn't didn't see trucks driving around Confederate flags in Berkeley or in, in where I was at in New York, you know? And so I didn't think that she, she should come to a university and experience that. And when I told the mentee who does go to university of Michigan about this, she was upset with me. She was like, why would you say that? And I was like, because it's not a good experience. One year later, this same mentee who is a, you know, a junior now was like, I understand what you said, Naomi. Now I understand one year, one year. And she was like, I know exactly why you told her not to come. It makes sense to me now. Well, do you think there's anything about university of Michigan in particular that makes it this way? Or is it just that this, our university is representative because our, our university is one of I mean, when, when I think about progressive places in the country, I think about literally Berkeley and University of Michigan are probably the two first and then Boulder, Colorado. So, so if this is, if this is the case here, if we're, if the white people in power are, and, and white students are excluding and, and demonizing people of color in this way here at University of Michigan, mm-hmm. then it is certainly happening in a, in a much graver degree across the country. So, exactly. so this is not exceptional. What do you make of that? Right. I mean, it's it's not. But when you are paying for a degree or you're going to um, learn more, I would try to pick an institution where maybe I may experience that a, a little bit less. You know, and there's there's always checks and balances or, you know, pros and cons with that because University of Michigan, because it's so wealthy, has, you know, so many resources that can help students. Now, it's up to each person to decide if it's worth worth the risk. You know, at the end of the day, I didn't make the decision for the mentee who decided not to go here, but she heard what I was saying 
and saw the demographics of, the, of this university and was actually choosing between UC Berkeley University of Michigan and she chose Berkeley. And yeah. Um, I mean, here's, here's another point, which, I mean, I didn't say this as forcefully enough. I, I think I should say it forcefully. Hmm. If you are a white supremacist and you are in the face of John Lewis and you are putting a cigarette butt out in his eye as he's channeling empathy for you, as he's imagining you as a little child, the, the, the person that you become, who is the inferior race in that case, white supremacist? Who is it? And the fact that the, the fact of the matter, this connects what I'm going to say now, that white supremacy and white nationalism are extremely self-serving ideologies. There is not, it's not a coincidence that as a rise of, or with Donald Trump's rise, people who fear fear a more inclusive society feel their own place in society being uprooted. In fact, some of the most racist people in this country, you might find it surprising, are the people who are some of the poorest, some of, some of the poorest people in the South in the country. And that's because they are in such fear. The only thing that they that they shouldn't take pride in, but they do, is their skin color. And it's an extremely self-serving ideology. And we need to be more explicit about that. You know, Brian Stevenson, one of my heroes, a civil rights activist, says that there has never been a public apology to the people of color in this country. It, it, a, a, a more active embrace of the racially tainted past and, and our persecution of black Americans. And until we acknowledge that this ideology is extremely self-serving, we're, we're not going to, you know, it's going to reinforce itself. So I, I'm curious what you make of these past four years and the rise of, you know, in, in our country, we won't even acknowledge what happened at the church in Charleston as or what happened in the uh, Squirrel Hill shooting as acts of white terrorism and white supremacy. It, it, so, so what do you make of these past four years and how, how does the, the Black Lives Matter movement provide a, a, a counterpoint, maybe an inflection point to it? I mean, it's hard. It's hard to make sense of the last four years because it's been so traumatizing. I mean, my goodness. Um, and I have huge critiques of this, of this country. And, and I feel like Trump is just, I mean, just illuminated what has been once again, the everydayness for a lot of people in this country and has exacerbated our issues even more. Uh, and so I think that you know, similar to your point about what you were calling self-serving, I'm also thinking too that this country um, survives off of and incentivizes individualism and privilege, and you honing in and, and a person honing in on that. I mean, even if we think about this this pandemic, you know, COVID, it's no surprise to me that we're in this position while you know we still have climbing cases when other countries have been able to to kind of get a handle on it. It's because. We're in a country that emphasizes, you know, you over everybody else. Take care of yourself. You know, make sure that you're good. Um, make sure you're you're okay. It's so individualistic, and it's incredibly sad. You know, um, that's just one way to put it. And so, and I, I'm sure you're aware of the the racial inequities in COVID exposure and or COVID cases and COVID deaths. Right. Right. I mean, and, and and that's captured. That's a result of racial inequities in the in the health system. The way that mm -hmm. doctors are making decisions about who mm -hmm. gets what treatment, about who gets to be put on a ventilator. It's also a result of this concept called weathering. Are you are you familiar familiar with weathering? No. So 
I'll, I'll link out to this in our, our show notes, but um, the New York Times did a, a researcher came on there to explain the three reasons that black Americans are suffering higher rates of, of COVID. The one reason is that they are more likely to work on the front lines to be essential workers, to work in essential businesses. And a lot of that, a lot of these essential businesses are not knowledge jobs because uh, you and I have the privilege of being at a higher education institution where we might be able to work remotely. But many black Americans do not have that privilege. And that's because the opportunity has been segregated and they've been shut out of opportunity for decades. The second are racial disparities in health decisions with with doctors. But the third reason is a result of this phenomenon called weathering, which is that mistreatment and racism can change not only someone's psychology, but they can change at the very cellular level and prolonged exposure to pollution it changes and and this treatment and this pollution changes them at the cellular level such that their immune systems are are more compromised. So those are the reasons. But yet Ibram Kendi points out that when people raise, you know, COVID-19 COVID is taking hold with more Black Americans, the, the racial response was to say, well, they must not be, well, that's because they're not taking it seriously enough. And th- there's this, I, I wanted to, now that we're here, I wanted to get your thoughts on this, that he says that we generalize concepts about Black individuals. In, in other words, we, as a society, somehow we've created stereotypes out of Black individuals, whereas with white individuals, we, you know, especially when it's an undesirable trait, we individualize that. We say it's only a result of them. Do you see that in our society? Oh my God, yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, when you talk about, about that, I mean, when you think about, you know, who's considered thugs, right? But, you know, cops aren't cops who are brutalizing folks are not considered thugs. So then again, you know, another entrenched stereotype is that poor people are lazy. Ah! Man, please, if you have to, you know, my own brother works, you know, 60 hours a week, you know, to provide for his family. And, and it's still, you know, it's making ends meet, but it's, it's making ends meet, barely making ends meet where other folks, you know, don't work as much, but he's considered to be, to be lazy because he's in a poorer bracket, but he works way more than, than other people in different, in different places. Um, And so Thinking about the entrenched stereotypes, again, getting back to that point, it really is, one, infuriating, um, and two, I mean, that's just at the basic level, and two, again, thinking about, we can keep piling on research. So so real quick, I'm going to interject real quick. This is from Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow. Uh, they, there was a survey or, or a study done when people were asked, what comes to mind when you think of a drug user or drug dealer, 95% of respondents pictured, they closed their eyes and pictured a a black person. Yet it's known, it's been borne out by studies that all all different community groups, all different racial groups use at the same level. So, and deal at the same level. So that's just, that's just one example. Somehow these stereotypes have become so entrenched and inform how we, how we view certain groups and, and not based on individuals, but based on these stereotypes. Yeah. I mean, that goes back to the school to prison pipeline or school to prison nexus, right? How folks are, are punished. Um, the youth that I work with often talk about, they are very aware, um, of the differences between how they're treated in Detroit and how they're, 
you know, affluent neighbors in Gross Point, white affluent neighbors in Gross Point are treated. And, and they're literally a rock's throw away from each other in some instances. How is it that, I mean, how is it that, that there's schools in Detroit who cannot get heat, heat in the winter months? And if you're not, you know, never been in Michigan, it is cold as hell here in the winter. There are schools in Detroit that can't access heat or clean water, but, you know, a school that's maybe 10 miles away in Gross Point has Olympic sized swimming pools. And they're public schools. You know what I'm saying? So if you want to say, oh, well, maybe it's private. No, these are public schools. Yeah. Well, a lot of that is because of the inequitable right. ways that schools are, are funded, which is largely based on right? property taxes. Exactly. And then you think about, right, to so what we were talking about earlier with the, you know, really talking about the history of this country and thinking about um, segregation and redlining and blockbustering. And, you know, I can go on and on and on again, important to. Well, well please do it. go into that because if, yeah, talk about some of these, these policies that are still haunting black Americans to the state that, that embody the reason behind these uh, racial disparities that we see. I mean, essentially with redlining, you know, they made it to where, and this is the federal government and local governments and com- and, um, and working with one another where Black folks could not access, um, they could not buy property, even if they have the money in particular neighborhoods, right? And then you think about how particular, and I'm going to just keep there just to keep with this example. So you can't buy property in a particular neighborhood, even if you have the money. So folks will be like, oh, they couldn't afford it. No, I can afford it, but I can't access it because I'm Black. So now I can't access it. I have to be in this other neighborhood, which, you know, you know, it is what it is. But then my neighborhood is then, you know, redlined. So my neighborhood is considered worth less than another neighborhood, mostly because it's black people in this neighborhood. So now my property value is lower than your property value. And so when we talk about taxes and, and worth and, and then we look at our local schools, you know, our schools are funded by property taxes. So I can't raise enough funds. I have to tax myself more. And there are studies out there that have proved that have shown that poor people have to tax themselves way more than wealthy people to get basic necessities for their school. But people are choosing not to believe or don't want to believe what's going on in our society. Even with COVID, I have friends whose whose parents and family members say that COVID is a political thing. <laughs> and they're what do you mean by that? They're saying that it's not real. Yes. Well, that's a that's a two hour long conversation exactly. in itself. The, the echo chambers and the <laughs> the the fake news or the right. perception that th- certain things are fake news. Yeah, you know, but that but that gets back to perception, though, right? Because it's like, well, then you think that these these certain people are more thugs. You know, you tell you know we're looking at what happened to George Floyd. Well, like maybe he shouldn't have been doing this or that. So it's okay for this this white police officer to have his knee on his neck for nine minutes. Because, you know, he was already on the ground with handcuffs. So, you know, at that point, you know, when people, it gets back to, you know, what do you consider violence? And also, again, like these perceptions and stereotypes that are just so pervasive in our society that is literally between life and death for a lot of people. And, you know, at this point, when people are like, well, they shouldn't be looting when people are protesting or they shouldn't be violent. There is so much violence in our society. And if people are fighting for, you know, justice and equity and for folks to be treated like human beings and are out there protesting, I am standing behind them a million percent. 
because, mm-hmm. you know, something has got to change and, and people are risking their lives to do it in the middle of a pandemic. And I got to just say that one more time. Yeah, there's there's a lot to consider there and, and respond to. One thing that struck me as you were you were talking about the redlining issue is there's this this picture which is depicted in probably one of the more seemingly civil pictures that you might see. It's depicted in Richard Rothstein's book. And it's of these demonstrators in front of a black family home in Levittown, Pennsylvania in August 20th, 1957, demonstrating, protesting the fact that this black family had the audacity to purchase a home, to want to live their civil lives in, in this white neighborhood. And if you don't think, if you don't recognize that these, this discrimination and this, this is continuing to have repercussions to this day, then you're completely wrong. And that's actually, I, I do want to go to this idea that has been raised. So there's, there's a certain section of the left that is using data to say that the, the Black Lives Matter protest is, movement is misguided in some sense because it's not based on a empirical claim or, or an empirical basis that there is uh, racial disparities in in Black people dying at police hands. And I'm not here to go into that at length because th- there are problems with these studies and there are certainly disparities in the way that Black people are treated in the, in the criminal justice system, which if we have time, we'll get into. But it's this idea that as you're talking about, this was not just in response to the killing of a, a single individual or, or three individuals. And I, I want to read you this quote from um, Brian Stevenson, and and I want you to you know add to it and, and reflect your own thinking of, of this. So he says, this is not just anger over what happened to George Floyd or Breonna Taylor or Ahmaud Arbery. It's anger about continuing to live in a world where there is a presumption of dangerous and guilt wherever you go. I'm 60 years old, and I've been practicing law for 35 years. I have a lot of honorary degrees and went to Harvard. And yet I still go places where where I'm presumed dangerous. I've been told to leave courtrooms because the presumption was that I was the defendant and not the lawyer. I've been pulled out of my car by police who pointed a gun at me. And I can just tell you that when you have to navigate this presumption of guilt day in and day out, and when the burden is on you to make people around you see that you are a human and fully fully human and equal, you get exhausted, you're tired. And I, I would argue that the black people out in the streets are expressing their fatigue, their anger, and their frustration at having to live this menace life in America. And that is not the same thing for white people who are supporting them. It doesn't mean that white people shouldn't be supporting them, but I don't think it's the proper focus of what many of us are trying to give voice to. And I just want to use this as a counterpoint to those people who are saying that this is a misguided movement to to defund the police or to make changes in our society because of some uh, about police specifically. So do you agree with this assessment that Brian says, and what's your interpretation of that? Yeah, I completely agree. Um, Because at the end of the day, you know, again, like I said earlier, and also what I said on the town hall, this is not new. You know, it's in our face again, again, and again, and again. Um, Recently, it was the birthday of Emmett Till. Emmett Till, I believe, would have turned um, 79 years old this year. And Emmett Till was brutally murdered as a child for supposedly whistling at a white woman. And it came out a few years ago, that white woman, right before she died, said that that she lied. Um, And so, you know, 
the fact that we're still in a generation, we could be living in the same generation that Emmett Till should still be alive today is, is so illuminating. Um, that means we're not that far from, you know, lynching and Jim Crow, and we're still experiencing it in different ways, you know, such as three folks that were named and, and many more lives that have been taken at the hands of brutality, um, not only with police, but also everyday citizens who consider themselves to be some sort of vigilantes, like with, hap- with, like with what happened with Ahmaud Arbery. Yeah, and that's that's just a disgusting case, not only of right. what those civilians did, but also the fact that it took a viral video exactly. to even arrest someone. I mean, that's talk about an invisible thing. If if that video had never surfaced, these prosecutors might never have even made an arrest in the killing of a totally innocent black person who was jogging. And I'm here to say I've I've been on a jog before and I've, you know, randomly gone in somewhere I probably shouldn't have been and that just exemplifies the the racism that's still here. That and we can never bring Ahmaud Aubrey back. We can never. There's casualties as a result of this that are countless that we can't bring back. I mean, he was jogging around his neighborhood, right? And so, you know, and and that's the thing too. Again, I'm getting back to the everydayness, and that and that's what this movement continues to be about. This resurgence and what folks are calling for abolition. It's the everydayness. I want to just be. I want to be able to go play in a park. I want to be able to sleep on my couch. I want to go jog around my neighborhood. I want to identify however the hell I want to identify. You know what I'm saying? I And, you know, it's this obsession with policing other people, you know, regardless of whether you're a police officer or not. Like, why? And, you know, you see this in the the everyday videos of people on the plane, you know, you don't belong in this country to immigrants, you know, or, or screaming at folks who identify as trans or, or killing trans folks because they're trans. That Like that is nothing. That has nothing to do with you. Um, you know, someone jogging around a neighborhood has nothing to do with you. And yet and still you, you find yourself trying to police another human um, and, and to the extent of killing them. And so you know, it is, it's much more than, than, um, police brutality. It is this obsession with, 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 um, treating people differently on perceived differences. And, uh, again, I want to emphasize the perception of it because as you've been pointing out with these various studies that you're quoting, a lot of these differences are unfounded, um, and are very much steeped in, in stereotypes. And even when I teach the students, again, I go back cause you know, I'm an educator, I ask them about, you know, we talk about the differences, uh, education disparities in our country, and a lot of folks run to cultural differences. And that to me is always so both is is so illuminating to me because so many people lean on the fact of what they've heard or even if they, their particular lived experience, which I think goes back to individualism, individualism and, you know, to a, a more to a higher extent, um, narcissism. Because you experience these couple experiences now, this whole group of people is like that throughout this entire country. I mean, hell, this world. And so, yeah, it is much more. It is much more than the lives that have been brutally lost and and, um, killed and brutally stolen from us, from, you know, our society and our world. It is about the everydayness and that humans, people just want to be. And can they be? Mm, Wow. Yeah, I'm it's. It's extremely sad. It's it's extremely sad what is happening in the world and the world that we find ourselves living in. And I don't think I made this point very elegantly earlier, but I think if people realize that we are 99.999 with infinite nines in there similar, 
as far as DNA wise, that we are all descended from Africans, that we are as a white American, I am myself an African because we all share a common ancestor and race is entirely a social construct. It's not based in biology. It's not based in our genetics whatsoever. If you look at a black person's DNA and a white person's DNA, you could not tell with the exception of this very small variation in the DNA that we are different. And I hope that that knowledge can bring people together and that we can accept a a common humanity. As I said in this article, it says that we are more similar (laughs) than even many other species are, uh, our closest relatives are to each other, that we have so much in common. And that's why I think having these conversations is, is, is crucial. Now, one question, Naomi, that we haven't gotten to is this kind of idealistic. Is there anything you want to say on that before I move to the question? Yeah, I do want to say that, you know, again, to your point, you said you hope that people accept what you're mapping out as our commonalities, you know, how much we are similar more than we are different. The thing is, people are choosing not to accept, like I said, study after study, talk after talk, interaction after interaction um, seems to not cut it for people in this country. You know, even when we are putting out statistics and, and thinking about this pandemic. And if you just did these things, you just wore a mask and people are refusing to wear a mask because it's their God given right to, to not wear a mask inside of a grocery store, even though that can mean you're preventing, um, you know, so many people from dying. You know, that's where I think folks, again, bringing back to black lives matter are saying enough is enough. And it's been enough. People have been saying this for, for their lifetimes, you know, we're still within generations of freedom fighters who have been saying enough is enough. And so, you know, it's no longer hoping if people accept it, it's more of like, okay, well then we're going to revolution, protest and fight for change then. Because clearly I can't reason with you because you're choosing to not be reasonable and you're choosing to be illogical. Yeah. If if you take that impression and take that idea and couple it with the conversation that I just had with my professor, Johannes Fufopoulos, about the ecology of disease and, and some of the human practices that led to this pandemic and, and other things that we are um, related to other species that we are doing that put us at danger. It appears from a distance that society is hanging on by a very yeah. slim thread because I, I agree yeah. with you that it's not right and that we cannot tolerate such things, this, this way to continue. And you actually sparked for me, you mentioned the kind of hypocrisy, the, you know, it's my God given right. Mm-hmm. And there's a real hypocrisy of people on the right that I have come to find where they're now endorsing. It's my God given right to not be to, for the government to not tell me to vaccinate myself. Mm-hmm. But, and, and there's this group that's formed called the pro-choice vaccination movement. Yet those, those same people believe that it's their right to tell other women in this country that they should keep their babies, right? That they should that they should have no choice in that matter whatsoever, that the government should should tell them what to do. Mm-hmm. And there's such a hypocrisy there that's like astounding. You know, it, it's like people can see they conform to their own beliefs about what's r- right and wrong without lining those two things up next to each other. It's like, okay, I believe that the government should not tell me that I should vaccinate myself, but I also believe the government should tell me 
that I must keep my child. Like, what do you make of that? And what does that say about our ability to, you know, influence these people to treat people more equitably? I mean, she's, <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's illogical. Racism is illogical. You know what I'm saying? Like, Phobia. It's self-serving. It's 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 it's, it's self-serving. You know, it's it 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 de- it defies logic. You know what I'm saying? You're literally saying I'm looking at you and saying you deserve less than me, or you deserve to die because I perceive you and your people, however you want to say that, to be this way. You know, yeah, you're right. It's totally illogical, and but yet, how do we how do we get them to, to step back from that? And I think this idea of reversing the power structures in our country, you know, while it's a radical step, that's something. Is there a more maybe a more um, acceptable interpretation of that that you 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 could see us us getting toward? I mean, you know, I'm always encouraged by the young people. I think that the the young people are really pushing the society to come to terms and grapple with like young people have always done our, you know, being illogical, our hypocrisies. And I am encouraged by, you know, folks who consider who who still fight, you know, and, and sometimes for me, I told a professor this a long time ago, that sometimes for me, I have to really think about my enslaved ancestors and like, how could you ever think, you know, imagine you know, for me, I think about, because I do have slavery in my ancestry, I think about that there were Black women, literally, who were lined up in barns to be basically, you know, to be assaulted and to, to force to have sex, to breed children, to be enslaved so that they could work. How could you ever think that you would be out of that? How could you ever dream of a different society or being free? you know, and what they they thought or what they saw freedom to be at that time. Like when you think about that, those type of um, experiences and people had to endure um, to fight for, you know, one day there can be an abolition of slavery. I have to believe that there, that there is change, you know, what my ancestors have gone through and what they've done for this country. I have to believe that there can be an overhaul, you know, and what that takes is sacrifice. And what that takes is, is collectiveness and collaboration and, and it, what that takes is education. You know, it, it takes a lot. And I think that it's possible, but it does not come without fight. And I think a lot of people are like, well, can we do this peacefully? No, clearly we cannot, you know, clearly, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, even back to your point again about the white supremacist sticking a, a cigarette, you know, I'm sure uh, lit up in John Lewis's face or I when he was doing nothing but standing there, clearly I can't, I can't uh, convey to you my humanity by being peaceful. Clearly I have to fight to take it. Um, and I need to fight with other people with me. And, and so I think that there, I think to another larger point is that we all have our lanes and we all have work that we need to do. And we all have to be willing, those of us who want a change in our society and want to, to be more free and to, to be, to just be, and that's, I'm gonna keep coming back to that point. We have to sacrifice and we have to be willing to, to let go of some of our own privileges in order for our society to be better. And I know that that is, um, mm-hmm. completely against what we're taught to do, because like I said, our society incentivizes individualism and focusing on ourselves. And so what does that mean to, to defy that and push against those urges and, and work with one another to, 
to reach a society that we all can be proud of because I can tell you this, I'm not proud of this country. I've never been. Well, so on that, on that note, and maybe you just explained it, but it seems to me that we we need to build more alliances between each other. We we need to build you know we need to con- look at people less as a part of a group that they're a part of and more as common humans. And on that note, I, I think this will be the last question because you've already been very generous with your time, and we we have talked about a lot, but not enough. There's never <laughs> mm-hmm. never enough education that people can do, and I, I hope people get something out of this conversation. But it's clear to me that if we are to move forward as a society, we we need to look at people more as humans and, and less through this, this racial lens. But I, I do have reservations about doing that immediately. And I think this is illustrated in a a quote that someone I admire uh, captured recently on on his his podcast. And I'm just going to read you the, the quote real quick and see what your your take is on this about this idea of colorblindness. He says, if you are like me, I hope you share the hope that there will come a time when the color of person's skin really doesn't matter. What would that be like? Well, how many blondes got into Harvard this year? Does anyone know what percentage of the police in San Diego, which is your hometown, are brunette? Do we have enough redheads in senior management and Fortune 500 companies? No one is asking these questions, and there's a good reason for that. No one cares. Imagine a world in which people cared about hair color to the degree that we currently care or seem to care about skin color. Imagine a world in which discrimination based on this took centuries to overcome and remains a persistent source of private pain and public grievance throughout our society, even where it no longer exists. What an insane misuse of human energy that would be. The analogy isn't perfect for a number of reasons, but it's good enough for understand what life would be like in, if the spell of racism and, and anti-racism were truly broken. The future we want is not one in which we all have become passionate anti-racist. It's a future in which it's not a future in which we are forever on guard against the slightest insult, awkward compliment, or the tweet that didn't age well. We want to get to a world in which skin color and other superficial characteristics of a person are morally and politically irrelevant. And if you don't agree with this, what do you think Martin Luther King Jr. was talking about? So what's your reaction to this and and the idea of moving towards a truly colorblind society? I mean, I think that there's beauty in our differences. It's to not be treated differently because of them. Like, I will forever state that I'm a proud Mm. Black woman. I identify as Black and I want to be seen for my Blackness. I am proud to be a Black woman. I do not want to be treated differently or have different access or punishment or harm because I'm a Black woman or that I grew up poor or whatever sexual identities I may have or however I may identify. And so to me, it's we are human and we do share things alike. I just, I don't want a black boy to be gunned down because he's playing with a toy gun. You know, when I know that a differently identified boy would not be treated in that way. And so, you know, for me, it's less about colorblind because there's beauty in our differences. I love the culture and um, the cultural diversity and ethnicities within our country and and the people that I meet. I've traveled um, internationally. I've been, you know, blessed to travel internationally and I love it. Um, I would, I would, I would hate to be like, I don't see any color. No, I would, I would love to see the differences in our culture and learn from them. I don't want to be treated differently because of them. Right. So what does that mean to, mm-hmm. to, to love and lift up our differences and, and to learn from one another and love one another because of that, not because of that, but also in that and not be treated differently or harm differently or have different um, opportunity or access because of the way that we identify or the way we, we may look. 
for me, that's the important point. Yeah, that's that's really beautiful. And I agree. I, I think if there was a world in which we could live in that world, in which we could celebrate our differences and, and respect each other's differences, mm-hmm. but not face persecution or segregation or discrimination or threats of violence because of it, then that would be a really beautiful world to live in. And I think a, another point here that I would, if I could speak with this person, I would say that right now, if we just said, okay, we no longer care about any statistics related to race or ethnicity or demography whatsoever, then we wouldn't, then Michelle Alexander would not have been able to bring awareness to the issue that 80 to 90% of people in jail serving crimes for, for drugs are black Americans, or we wouldn't be able to know that a black defendant, as Brian Stevenson cites, is 22 times more likely to receive the death penalty than a white defendant for committing virtually, you know, committing the same crime. And that if the the person who is killed is white, then that person is the defendant is 11 times more likely to receive the death penalty than if they're if they're black. Mm-hmm. So if we just act as if the last 150 to 200 400 years really of our our history that have resulted in the disparities that we're seeing today, slavery by a different name. In fact, the subtitle of Michelle Alexander's book is Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. And she argues that this this willingness, this wantness to act as if, you know, some people act as if we've moved past racism has actually resulted in so many lives being destroyed and relegating many black Americans to second class citizenship because of this caste system. So that would be be my take. But I want to give you the the closing words on, you know, anything that you want to leave our our listeners with. You've been you've been great and and your work is very inspiring and and I hope we can move towards um towards a more equal society, so an equitable society. But I, I wanted to give you the last word. I think for me it's always a question and I am in education because I do believe in the power of education. I do believe that we are more than our patterns and that we're more than the cycles that we're in, that there are experiences and there are people that can drastically alter our lives. It's allowing for that change and that alteration to happen. And so, you know, it's always for me, both deep question of why. So why, you know, why was this person harassed? Why was this person shot? Why do so many, why are so many black people arrested at these alarming rates? Why are so many black children attending such poor under-resourced schools and, and, and getting at investigating the why, um, and keep investigating that. And also not to be, um, to embrace being uncomfortable and embrace the fact that like you, um, have, all of us have participated in one way or another to the oppression of another person. Even if we get down, you know, I won't go into a whole other <laughs> diatribe on capitalism, but you know, we're in a system in a society, we're breathing the air. My therapist says we're breathing the air of white supremacy, of capitalism, of homophobia, of transphobia. There's no way that we're not going to be affected. And the moment that you think that that could never be me is the moment that you are going to be you're making yourself more susceptible to participating in those harms. You know, um, we're human. We're going to mess up. It is on us to, you know, be surrounded by people who will hold us accountable. And as I lovingly say, who will 
snatch our edges and also lay them too, who will both hold us accountable and also affirm us. Um, and that we, you know, we push ourselves to, to do more for our society so that we could, so that everyone can just be as they are freely. Um, and so I will continue to fight, um, along with other folks so that we can, we can see that day one way or another, whether it's in my lifetime or not. join the all things connected podcast there's many ways you can show your support you can write a review on apple podcasts or on stitcher wherever you listen you can share it with a friend or talk about it on your own podcast you can post about it on social media such as sharing your favorite episode or you can support it directly on patreon at patreon.com forward slash all things connected thank you very much your support is much appreciated